Welcome to The View from Apollo, a podcast where we discuss current macroeconomic trends and break down how they'll impact our investors. I'm your host, Torsten Slock. I'm Chief Economist here at Apollo Global Management. Each episode, I'll be joined by leaders from across our business who will share their unique perspective on the market factors that are shaping sectors and investment strategies. You can catch new episodes by subscribing to The View from Apollo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by visiting our homepage, apollo.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Thorsten Slock, Chief Economist here at Apollo, and you're listening to The View from Apollo podcast. My guest today is Jim Vanek, co-head of Apollo's global performing credit business. And I'm very happy to have Jim on the show today to discuss the state of credit markets and gather his views on the outlook for the asset class. So with no further ado, let's get right into it. Jim, welcome back to the show. Great to speak to you, Torsten. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Great to have you here. So before I ask my first question, I just wanted to contextualize a little bit things about with providing an overview of the economic landscape that we've experienced so far here in 2023. As we have talked a lot about uh, here at Apollo's target, inflation at the moment is hanging at around 5 6%, and the Fed's target is that inflation should be 2 So that all meant that the Fed had to be more hawkish. The labor market was also stronger. Retail sales were stronger. A broad range of indicators just turned out to be a lot hotter and a lot better than what anyone really had expected. And that has, of course, had a very important backdrop for credit markets. What is your current assessment, Jim, of the current state of where credit markets are at the moment? It's a great question, Torsten. Due to many of the dynamics you were just talking about, the credit markets had a very good January. If you look at returns um, for credit, the high yield market was up nearly 4% in the month of January. We saw a substantial amount of spread tightening. The investment grade market was up also just about 4% in the month of January, although modestly less than the high yield market for the same reasons. Uh, It was a, a confluence of broad general expectations that we were not just well past the peak of inflationary data, but also in an environment where you could expect inflationary data or pressures or inputs um, from a macroeconomic perspective to suggest that these pressures would continue to fall. That coupled with um, demand for yield, demand for assets in an environment where assets weren't being created, a pace to meet that demand led to a strong month of January, in particular for fixed rate asset classes that had extremely difficult years in 2022. As a reminder, the high yield market was down a little over 11% last year. Then, not exactly at the end of January, but into the beginning of the month of February, the dynamics that you're suggesting around data that's showing a labor market that remains really strong, data around pricing that suggested levels weren't going to fall meaningfully or in lockstep with the fall that we experienced over the course of the last year, started to move rates higher, which is obviously negative for fixed rate asset categories. And as such, both the high yield and investment grade markets had much more difficult months of February. High yield was down about 1.3% in February. The investment grade market was down almost 3%. And it looked a lot like the kind of volatility that we experienced through different periods of of 2022, where volatility to the rates market, um, volatility to U.S. Treasury yields was really directing what was going on in credits. At the same time, we continue to see floating rate categories in the public and private loan markets outperform 
and experience much more subdued levels of volatility, um, given they benefit from base rates that through 2023 have only continued to rise. So it's looked a lot like uh, the experience that we had last year. What do you think uh, is the reason why spreads have remained so tight here through basically uh, the last few months? I mean, it's really a million-dollar question, Torsten, and it's absolutely one of the most important ones when you think about investing in credit right now. Spreads in the high-yield market are in the mid-400s. They're around 50 basis points tighter um, on the year. They are well off the wides of last year when they got into the, the low 600s at the end of Q2. And from most, from the perspective of most, they're not paying you from a credit spread perspective if we are expecting in the latter half of this year or into next year a recessionary environment or a default rate that gets very elevated and remains very elevated for some time, which it is definitely not right now. At the same time, when you think about the other inputs to valuation, which are also meaningful, you could almost rephrase the question as, are you getting paid to own credit right now, even if credit spreads are not as wide as they quote unquote should be if you're expecting bad outcomes with regards to the economy or the default rate. When you look at yields, they remain very elevated. And this is across really all credit markets. When you look at the prices um, on most assets, particularly those that were created before this period of elevated interest rates, they continue to remain depressed and also provide a lot of convexity and upside in any kind of environment where interest rates are lower. So while it's not easy to make the argument that you're getting paid on a spread basis for a difficult economic period to come in 6 to 12 to 18 months. It's also difficult to make the argument that you're not getting paid from a yield perspective and also from an optionality perspective in, a, in an environment with lower rates um, based on the other, value, the other valuation metrics that we really use, depending on what your expectations are for where the economic data takes us again over the medium to long term. So let's just talk about what to expect then for the next uh, several months ahead. I mean, from a Fed perspective, I mean, a year ago, the Fed funds rate was basically zero. And today we are with a Fed funds rate of roughly four and a half. And if the market is pricing that the Fed funds rate has to go up to five, maybe a little bit more than five, I mean, from that perspective, we have gone a long way in terms of raising the base rate. Um, do you think the, vol- the volatile environment that we have had now for, for basically the last year is about to get worse or be about the same or get better as, as you look ahead? I think the, the difference in return profiles for most parts of the credit markets in January and then in February is an indicator of that, right, where we experienced a substantial amount of volatility just in a two-month period. I think what's happening is that even though the credit markets should be expected to remain relatively volatile, because the um, valuations available and because of the outright return potential in the credit markets and because that is just so high um, relative to other historically volatile periods, you're seeing a level of demand. Uh, The other element of this that we're thinking about is – if we if we've moved up um, the the hill, as it were, with regards to rates, and are closer in theory and in, in all probability to a peak than we have been really in any period that preceded it, we also need to think about what this looks like on the other side after rates reach that peak. If we get to a place where rates start to come down, that process is probably not going to be smooth and straight. The beginning of that process isn't clear. It really depends on. Um, how economic data informs what the Fed is going to do. 
And you should anticipate volatility on the other side as well. To the extent inflationary data starts to look like it's moderated and, and coming down, how long is that period? How long does that period need to be before the Fed acts and reverses some of what it's done? To the extent that process starts and the Fed does start to act, what if there's a reversal in what the data looks like? What if data starts to look like the tightening of financial conditions is going to create a, a, a pretty substantial material slowdown? What does that mean for credit markets? So I think that volatility um, will remain elevated. We probably haven't reached a plateau. You can't expect moderate markets going forward. But at the same time, the opportunity set right now is so attractive. So that brings me to the issue of the how you look at the window of opportunity of of investing in private credit at the moment. I mean, if we look back at, the, and as you and I have talked about several times, if we look back at uh, in March of 2020 and April, there the window of opportunity for investing during the pandemic shock when it just started, it was really only about three weeks because the nature of the shock was such that uh, there was a lot of distress in markets in a very, very short period of time. And then the Fed and the ECB and central banks around the world stepped in and you began to see a rally and the window really closed quite quickly. Today, the window of opportunity is probably more like not three weeks, but more like three years because we're now looking at a situation where inflation is the reason why there's all this distress. In other words, the reason why the Fed and the ECB are raising the cost of capital is because they're trying to get inflation under control. So when the window of opportunity is here, um, how do you think about the, 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 the length, if you will, or the duration of this window of opportunity? And why is it, as you just mentioned, that, uh, that things are so attractive and the yield levels that you're seeing are so attractive in private credit at the moment? Sure. There's a, a couple of perspectives here that I think are important to touch on. Number one, private credit strategies performed very well last year in general, both outright. And then if you compare them to public market strategies, the outperformance was very significant. There are a lot of benefits to private credit, but private credit in the corporate credit market is inherently floating rate, um, which means that returns are benefiting from higher base rates. That benefit didn't really start to be realized until really the, the fourth quarter of last year, but we're experiencing it in full now. And it's going to lead to total returns that look strong relative to really almost any other credit market in, in other periods, absent a huge move lower in rates that causes in a, in a benign economic scenario that causes fixed rate asset classes to really outperform. You've described private credit as a safe place to be in a storm in the past when we're experiencing volatility, the primary cause of which is volatility to, to rates. It's an area that benefits, particularly as interest rates are rising, um, but also sees more, more muted volatility. In terms of the opportunity set, though, I don't think you need to or should look at it as something that depends on broader volatility in order to, to make sense. When we talk about the opportunity set here, most of the opportunity, if not all of the opportunity, is structural as opposed to cyclical. Our strategies in private credit are really a result of changes in the banking system. They're a result of the desire um, for sponsors, companies, and management teams to deal directly with their lenders. It's a strategy that benefits from the fact that Increasingly, companies want their capital structures to be thoughtful and really fit the business model of the company that's borrowing. These are all structural reasons why private credit makes sense for a growing percentage of the companies that are that are really in need of capital. 
at the same time, it's delivering outsized returns for the investors in these kinds of assets. I think that this window, we use the word vintage sometimes, is going to be extremely attractive, particularly given the types of companies and the quality of companies that we're lending to. I think the window of opportunity is only going to grow over time, regardless of kind of broader volatility, even if there are periods in which there's greater levels of activity, depending on the amount of M&A that's occurring, depending on what volatility looks like in the public markets, et cetera. Over the long term, it's a strategy that benefits from higher rates and it benefits from market volatility, but it makes sense in almost in any environment because of the structural changes to the market that I was trying to describe. A very important issue, of course, is that if we do get on the other side of this rate hike cycle, if we do get a harder landing, there are some very important differences between small cap or middle market companies relative to large cap companies. Because normally, of course, when you have a slowdown in the economy and, of course, when you have a recession, uh, middle market companies and small cap companies tend to underperform and not do very well. Uh, so how do you see current market conditions for direct lending and origination, in particular in the large corporate space? Sure. So to your to your points, the reason we're so focused on um, the large cap space is because really in any period of... Um, elevated fundamental stress or any period where you start to see default rates rise, the default rate for businesses that are smaller is always higher. And we're starting to see it right now, even though the default rate remains relatively low to relative to historical averages, it has moved up modestly into this year. And at the same time, when you look at the default rate for companies to generate less than $25 million worth of EBITDA, It's higher than the default rate for companies that generate less than $50 million, and it's higher for than the default rate for companies that um, generate greater than $50 million. It's due to greater degrees of liquidity for bigger businesses. Typically, bigger businesses have a greater degree of competitive advantages that allow them to increase profitability in periods of stress, even if there are headwinds to revenue. It's one of the reasons why we are so focused on this opportunity. And one of the things we speak to private credit investors is about the need to have exposure to large cap direct lending in their portfolios. And then turning to sectors and industries that you're looking at in the private credit space, where are the opportunities that you find most interesting at the moment? So we have been um, looking for opportunities in all of the industries that we typically lend into um, across our performing credit business and are finding opportunities that are that are interesting in, in really nearly all of them. We're looking for the same kind of characteristics in the companies that we lend to, regardless of the format of the debt. And that's in companies with highly recurring business models that are typically not cyclical, that don't experience great degrees of volatility to demand for their products, and that generate a lot of cash flow. And those kinds of businesses exist across the industrial space, the healthcare space, the media space, tech space, et cetera. So we're really looking across all the industries for the kind of business models that we like. I would tell you the areas that that we're seeing from a fundamental perspective, the most pressure Um, on cash flow and on margins across different industries are, and this is fairly obvious, it's those kinds of companies that depend on a relatively high degree of labor, given two things, labor is more expensive and the fact that it's difficult to come by, which in many business models can put pressure on revenue in many In many business models, you can see issues with regards to volumes if companies can't get an appropriate number of people into the system. And those kinds of pressures we're seeing in 
various business services companies and certain types of healthcare companies. So while we're looking across really all the industries that we lend into for the right business model and cash flow characteristics, we are thinking through what has been the most prevailing area of inflation, and that's in labor, um, impacts certain kinds of businesses. How do you today think about default rates and shadow default rates? I mean, how do you think about the risks that you're taking when um, you're doing direct lending and giving loans to companies? Sure. The default rates in the in the public markets um, are higher. They're at around 2.2% in both the bond market and the loan market, which is a, a two-year high for those metrics. If you look across the sell-side research and the leveraged finance markets, speaking to what the expected default rate should be by the end of the year, it typically ranges from around three to five percent, and there are outliers that are that are definitely higher than that. They get to kind of six to seven percent, and I expect that we will see a default rate that's at least at the low end of those ranges towards the end of the year. It's obviously our goal, and, and really every credit investor's goal for the most part, to limit the amount of default experience they see in their portfolios and also to uh, maximize the recovery given default in any dynamic where they're lending and in an element that really informs any kind of initial analysis of a credit investment from a micro perspective. I do think you're going to see an increased level of defaults into the year. I do expect that the fact that floating rate borrowers are paying so much interest right now on their debt um, is going to influence that. I think that a lot of the lending that was done in the public and private markets before this experience probably lacked the right analysis around the impact on cash flows of higher base rates. And in particular, in situations where loan-to-value levels were high, there was a lack of appropriate subordinated capital in the form of, of debt or equity. That's going to be part of what the increase in default rates look like. At the same time, Businesses that are very strong, but that are experiencing pressure on cash flow from higher interest rates don't become uninvestable. And I think that this default rate experience that we're going to have over the next 12 months, roughly, is going to be much different than a default experience that we've experienced previously. In 15 and 16, energy companies were defaulting because their asset base was losing value precipitously. And the companies that were defaulting we're doing so on an asset base that was it was extremely low, and it influenced what the recovery given default looked like. I think this is going to be a different scenario, and it's going to be important to think about why companies are defaulting and, and whether or not it's an issue with their fundamental business model or a function of, of bad capital structures. So on the back of that, Jim, um, what are your views on how deals are being structured these days, uh, particularly as compared to the public market? What are terms and covenants like? Are credit conditions tightening, easing, staying the same, or are people preparing for a sharp slowdown? Or how are things looking at the moment on that front? So one of the reasons why um, we like speaking to this vintage of private credit as being particularly as attractive is because the points that you're raising, Torsten, are all at the moment, very lender friendly. We're seeing sponsors really over equitize the businesses that they're buying because of the cost of debt capital and because of that impact on cash flows. We're also seeing sponsors put more cash on companies' balance sheets in general than they typically would in order to buffer them against what this experience really means. And that's attractive from a from a lending perspective. Terms and covenants are good. That's maybe our second most important area of focus after the creditworthiness of an investment. And in general, um, because of the lack of available capital across public markets, because of 
where we are with regards to the types of deals that we're doing. I would say that the structural elements of a loan and a bond that make it attractive um, to a lender or a buyer of that bond are relatively strong versus previous periods, which all accrues to the benefit of the buyer of this kind of, of debt or an investor in a fund that's accessing. We're getting up against uh, the uh, time we have available here. But before we end, let's just talk about a few other things that are going on uh, at a high level uh, and how you think about it. Uh, there's all kinds of issues on the macro front that are moving at the same time. We have a debt ceiling situation. We have China reopening. How do you think about those macro risks? And maybe even also throw in there, what's keeping you up at night? Is there anything at the moment at a broader level that uh, you're particularly worried about when you think about uh, private credit and direct lending at the moment? I don't mean to say this to the economist, but as you know very, very well, there is no free lunch, right? If we're getting paid an extraordinarily high yield on the assets that we own, that is cash flow that's being taken from the system that can't be diverted elsewhere to investment, to CapEx, et cetera. Even if we're not necessarily seeing it in the in the fundamentals right now, there are choices being made at really every business, in particular those that borrow on a floating rate basis, that are going to impact the the company into the future. And it's something that we don't understand yet is to come. But at the same time, we need to think about additionally, the inflationary pressures that we see in macroeconomic data are very real for individual businesses and are impacting them in different ways, but really around profitability as it relates to the cost of labor. That's going to impact some businesses to um, a greater extent. And understanding what the scope of that looks like is something that is existential as it relates to, to our work. So thinking through what happens next and then what happens after that and what the conclusion and the result from a fundamental perspective is of these tighter conditions is something that because we're not experiencing it in the moment, it gets less attention than whatever is happening that day. But at the same time, is going to be fundamentally important if we think about what the longer term outcomes are of our activity and our investment. Uh, so that's something that we're incredibly focused on, trying to understand what comes next. Fascinating. With that, thanks so much, Jim, for joining me today. And uh, we really agree to appreciate your time. We know how busy you are. Thank you, Torsten. It's always great to speak to you, and I appreciate it as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The You from Apollo. This podcast was recorded on March 10th, 2023. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. There can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, 
or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature. Due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof or other variations thereon or comparable terminology.